0: Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Reverend Dr. Tony Lynn talks to Miguel Escobar about his new book, The Unjust Steward, Wealth, Poverty, and the Church Today. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org.
1: Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Tony Lin. I'm a cultural sociologist and author of Prosperity Gospel Latinos and Their American Dream, published by UNC Press in 2020. And I am here today with Miguel Escobar, who is the executive director of the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Theological Seminary. And he's been serving the Episcopal Church in, in different leadership capacities for many years. Today we are going to talk about his. Book his new book, upcoming book called *The Unjust Steward: Wealth, Poverty, and the Church Today*. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Tony. Um, it's great to be here, and I'm excited about this conversation. So
1: first, tell us tell us how you ended up, uh, un mexicano de Texas. You know, how did you end up being running <laughs> the, the the Episcopal Divinity School here in New York City?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> a great question. Um, so I think the the long answer of that uh, has to do a lot with just an early fascination with the role of religion in people's lives. Um, I grew up in Texas uh, outside of San Antonio um, and uh, really grew up kind of split between two very different visions uh, and types of Christianity. Um, on the one hand, uh, in my family and an extended family, um, all of whom were seasonal migrant farm laborers. My parents were seasonal migrant farm laborers growing up. My grandparents were on both sides. Um, you know, I really saw the way that Mexican American Roman Catholicism, as well as uh, Evangelical Latino traditions um, on different sides really enriched uh, the lives of my family. Um, I'm, I'm giving the shorthand version here, but really gave them dignity, um, meaning in their lives, a way of kind of bridging into America, um, as Tony you've written so uh, well about. Um, and this really, this really hit. Home for me um, uh, in when I was a teenager, and as my grandparents began to die, my grandparents uh, all died within about a year and a half of each other mm. and the the role of religion in that particular moment of sort of honoring their lives, the lives of these people who society really doesn't honor uh, as well as giving my family strength, uh, my aunts and my uncles, and and meaning to understand what was happening. I I was a teen, I was about 14 at that point. And I was just watching and observing and it really moved me to see the way in which the church and religion was present in that particular moment. And That was I would say that was the more generally positive side of kind of Christianity. And I was also growing up in a small Texas town, uh, mostly white, very conservative. I'm Latino and gay, uh, and uh, was very clearly that uh, growing up and in, in in high school and you know middle school all all through those periods. Um, and that was a very tough experience. I mean, so I grew up seeing what we're now seeing so much around the country—the rise of white Christian nationalism—happening uh, all around me. So, you know, there were there was um, students walked out of bio two class when evolution was taught. Uh, I lost many friends, or friends, I should say, not many, but friends to homeschooling. Uh, there were efforts to ban books from the library. My mm parents were constantly trying to be dragged into uh, these efforts, and they thankfully resisted and were not did not want that. Um, you know, uh, I, I heard students, white students talking about uh, you know how interracial marriage is sinful on the grounds that man should not lie with beast. Um, you know there was flare, a prayer on the flagpole. Uh, I went to a public school and yet the principal uh, said the Lord's prayer at football games, you know, all of all of the things that we're seeing um, right now around. You know, in in which in which it feels like we're. Playing at the edges of theocracy, I I was sort of experiencing and around and, and was definitely other in that particular moment, and you know that resulted in people leaving the church. But for me, it actually made me fascinated. It made me fascinated that the same scriptures, the same figures could on the one hand inspire the really um, kind of dangerous white nationalism that I, I see as well as this give birth to traditions and faith that give a lot of meaning to uh, uh, marginalized communities. And that really is what uh, began my academic interests, my overall interest. And I was a religious studies uh, student at the Catholic University. I went to the Lake in San Antonio. I went and studied at Union Theological Seminary for my Master of Divinity degree, graduated in 2007. And uh, I've been working for the Episcopal Church ever since. So that's the long, I think, long answer.
1: Uh, that, that's great, and I have to say, have, having read parts of, of the book, you, you write about that experience so beautifully, right? That, that at moments I, I was I was embarrassed to, to be in that present when you're describing some of those harsh, difficult moments, and but also very very honored that you, you allow the readers to go into into your you know by your grandfather's side and as a kid, and th- these are it's just beautifully beautifully written in the in the book, and and it's a great setup. For you to tell us what what is this book about, and this the, you you gave us a sense of your trajectory, I think, yeah. and I, I think th- this is the book that uh, that only you could have written in the way that 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 it was written. So so tell us a little bit about what what this book is about.
0: Yeah, well, thank you, Tony. Um, it's really kind uh, to here. So this book is. Um, it's, it's about looking at how Christianity wrestled with issues of wealth and poverty over the first 500 years. Um, and I'm, but, but it's not a reference book. It's not a history book. It's um, me, the son and grandson of my seasonal migrant farm laborers. Um, who have kind of lived between these two forms of Christianity, kind of just reflecting on what I hope are, I write are informed reflections uh, on the way that different theologians and figures during this period really wrestled um, with uh, what it meant to be either you know, poor or, or have wealth um, and, you know, with some of Jesus's most radical statements around poverty and, and wealth. Um, and it, it's comprised of 24 chapters. And um, what I do is I take a kind of key text uh, in each chapter over the that uh, key text from those first five centuries and really just wrestle with it, basically. Um, spend time wrestling with it. Um, one of my favorite chapters uh, is, uh, t- Tony, I'm not sure you actually read it, but like it, it was about um, Basil of Caesarea uh, and um, his, he gave a sermon about what wealth means in a time of natural disaster, mm-hmm. specifically famine. Mm. Um, and, you know, I was writing this during the COVID pandemic. <laughs> the COVID, I mean, I am, we're still having this conversation in the midst of the pandemic. And it was this really powerful uh, just opportunity to, to read um, his words in which he talks about wealth as a form of medicine, uh, wealth as a form of medicine that has to reach people who are suffering. And if the rich do not give aid to the poor at this time, let's say through vaccines, or, or at least not, you know, let's just say that um, that, actually that's a form of withholding medicine from a a suffering patient. You know, this was written in the fourth century and there are so many things that he wrote and the others wrote during this period that were really profound uh, and inspiring. Um, The the passages or the chapter that I think, Tony, you read, one of them was about the image of reversal um, that is within the gospel of Luke and particularly within the Magnificat, Uh, you know, this image God will uh, reverse the, the positions of the rich and the poor and will bring down uh, the mighty and lift up the lowly. And the way in which this image of reversal, uh, including in the Lucan Beatitudes, is such a key part of what is kind of at the, at the heart of ancient Christianity, uh, of this vision. And we oftentimes emphasize the positive, you know, blessed are the poor. But we also forget that there's actually a corresponding message to the rich, um, and that becomes a lot harder to say uh, in context. Um, not to pick on you, Tony, but like like ours, in which Tony, you're you're at Trinity Wall Street, and I, you know, I do work with a lot of wealthy people too, um, and our, our the Christianity today that we. Live and swim in, and certainly in the Episcopal Church, but also in kind of a world of prosperity gospel, um, has has a really hard time embracing that that theme of reversal that is actually really central to to the gospel. I believe.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and I'm happy to dig in into the, the Episcopal Church if you want. I'm Presbyterian, so <laughs> <laughs> let's let, let's do it. Yeah. But uh, you you mentioned you you also mentioned the. Uh, the connection between white national, white Christian nationalism and and our understanding of wealth. And, uh, but specifically the the idea of whiteness here, right? And, you know, I'm kidding about uh, Presbyterians are just as white as Episcopalians, but our our denominations are the the whitest, some of the whitest, you know, and and also some of the wealthiest, right? Episcopalians, statistically Episcopalians and Presbyterians are the wealthiest, uh, wealthiest of of those who have denominational affiliations uh and not just money but power right i think episcopalians have the 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 most presidents ever in u.s history are are episcopalians right you you guys have the the record with 11 yeah um so so this, this is your your book you're you're not just calling out conservative uh you know any theological party this is the, the, the racial disparity of, of wealth and our understanding of wealth it, it's is throughout right so so t- t- tell tell us more about the, this connection between uh, whiteness in in general right and white supremacy and and what what you what are you hoping to to teach us that we learn from from your book from from what you you have to say
0: yeah um let me try and say end two ways um I think the first, the first thing that kind of that comes to mind is um, there is a chapter that explores uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Um, I can't believe I'm forgetting. It. I think it's First Corinthians. <laughs> uh, uh, but basically, the the first historical reference to the words of institution that take place in the Eucharist right? Um, this is in, uh, in letter to the Corinthians, in which he is talking about, um, in which he actually is very angry because the rich and the poor, well, the rich have separated themselves out from the poor, uh, to have their own sort of separate meal. Um, so as presumably to not be bothered by people who are literally hungry and and thirsty, they decided to celebrate the Lord's supper in this literally segregated, way. And so the first words, uh, the first historical reference to the words of institution, which Episcopalians uh, hear every Sunday, actually takes place in the middle of Paul raging at the wealthy. Mm -hmm. Um, He's really angry at them because they have segregated themselves from the poor. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a community that, as a denomination that really considers itself to be Eucharistically centered and is also 95% plus white, and uh, I believe the wealthiest, if not uh, constantly almost the wealthiest, I think that that has, has a profound implications. Um, so Paul's vision of what it needs to be uh, in the Lord's Supper together is is to celebrate with people who are uh, who are poor um, and marginalized. And I mean, he goes on literally in the very next chapter to talk about. So it is First Corinthians, sorry, <laughs> First Corinthians eleven, I believe, uh, about the body of Christ. And he says um, that. You should. Uh, I'm going to forget the exact words. That um, when you worship the body, you should. You need to be able to see the most vulnerable parts, um, and the most vulnerable parts need to be present uh, in this in this same space. And he is talking again. Uh, and Andrew McGowan at uh, Yale uh, really argues that. Um, He's really talking about what it means to be in community with one another—a community that cuts across class, uh, cuts across caste, uh, and I would say today uh, across race. Um, and that is a that is, I think, part of what we have to wrestle with um, when we're talking about whiteness and wealth of our denominations. Now, uh, the the second piece that I would want to mention is is a little different. And it is about the kind of white Christian nationalist, sort of um, the rise of white Christian nationalism. And let me be, I wanna give a really specific reference here. Um, Catherine Stewart uh, has written an amazing book called The Power Worshippers. And it's all about the rise of religious nationalism. And she references a man, or she, she's a journalist, and she just talks about a man named Ralph Dollinger, who is a uh, former athlete, um, evangelist, and who was leading weekly Bible studies uh, in the White House under the former president. Um, and at this weekly Bible study, you know, 11 out of the 15 cabinet uh, members were regularly present, including at times Vice President Mike Pence. Um, mm-hmm. He has an economic vision. And in the Bible studies, he was laying out. uh, He was talking about how the Roman economy was based on slavery. And the household codes of Paul's letters uh, say that slaves should obey their masters. And therefore, uh, laborers really have no rights and should have no rights in relationship to their bosses, which she notes was really embraced by agribusiness over the past four years. He also argues that uh, for flat tax, based on the idea of the tithe, uh, and you know everything should be ten percent. And if the United States is not willing to accept the flat tax, he argues that um, the voting rights of those on government assistance programs should be taken away. So this these were the Bible studies that were happening in the White House uh, with cabinet secretaries present. And that is what I mean by white nationalism, white Christian nationalism. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a pretty dangerous uh, sort of uh, reality that we are currently living through and experiencing. And, um, and so, again, just in terms of what. <laughs> <laughs> what it means to talk about wealth and poverty in this country, and, and, and specifically Christianity wealth and poverty in this country, is certainly to critique you know, the mainline denominations that you and I are part of, absolutely, and they, they deserve to be deeply critiqued, and we have to hold it in within the broader context of there's a, there's a broader phenomenon uh, that's happening, an uh, economic vision, too, that is also that's pretty scary um at least to me uh about how people and and uh view the poor uh this time mm-hmm.
1: yeah yeah so uh, i i want to talk a little bit about the 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 passage from luke that uh, that you take the the title of your book from right the the unjust doer uh, luke uh, luke 16 right and uh just, just a bit of of Context here. I, I don't think most Christians know this is even in the Bible. Most you know, <laughs> like the 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 parable that there's a there's a manager. He's about to be fired, so he goes and tells all the people who owes money to his boss that you know, hey, cut it. You know, if he owns a hundred gallons, cut it to fifty, and this so he can uh, so he can have a place to live after after he gets fired. And then in the parable, Jesus says. The the owner looks at the this manager who 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 mismanaged his things and says you know his his, manager, his master the NRSP says and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted surely right and I take that to mean it's okay to work for the denominations that we do <laughs> but what what why did you t- title your book after this and and how how are we to apply it in in our daily life in, in 2022.
0: Yeah. So um one of the things I think one of the most surprising things that I learned through just looking at these 24 mm-hmm. texts over the first five centuries was actually how often that parable came up. Um, so you know today um, I think when when polls are done about the The passage that most Americans know relating to wealth and poverty. It's you know the passage from Matthew in which Jesus says, The poor will always be with you. Mm-hmm. But during these first five centuries, I'm I not going to go so far to say as it was all based on this one, but but there's a lot of discussion of the parable of the unjust steward. And I think a part of the reason for that is because it's it's so perplexing. Um, Jesus does seem to say, um, you know, use unrighteous mammon to make friends among the poor, uh, to make ho- eternal homes uh, among the poor. Um, it's, uh, it's a very complex parable. Um, it's certainly perplexing, and it almost becomes kind of a Rorschach test uh, for all these different theologians because um, you know, Clement of Alexandria in the second century uh, uses it. Uh, he is very wealthy. He's from wealthy family, and he he his primary concern is pastoral care for the wealthy families of Alexandria. He uses it to argue that the wealthy should retain their wealth um, because, in doing so, they can make friends among the poor over the long haul. Uh, um, Basil of Caesarea has a completely different interpretation. He says that the parable means that we need to be uh, stewards of humanity and not our master's wealth or not a master's wealth. Augustine also has a different uh, interpretation of the parable. So, like all these different people are looking at the same parable and coming to radically different conclusions. Um, so, I, I'm, maybe I'll just say what I think the parable is. <laughs> <laughs> means I, I acknowledging full well that it is very complex. So the steward, um, a lot of biblical scholarship is just centered on well, what? Who was the steward in this in this particular story? And the steward was the kind of head slave. He was the oftentimes the first slave or a, a person who was a slave who was made of, a freeman uh, on the condition that he held this position. Um, So the language that I, you know, being born in the United States comes to mind is overseer, the head uh, taskmaster. And his job was to extract wealth and labor from the land and from the slaves, day laborers, the tenant farmers, all of whom he managed. So, you know, and he did it in a way that was, Exploitative, um, the unjust steward. You know, it may come from the accusation of, of fraud that happens in the beginning of the parable, but I also also think it it ha- it comes from the fact that to be a steward, uh, it was to be mayorgomo uh, in Spanish, which is a, a very negative connotation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was to be an efficient, exploitative manager of property and extracting that wealth from people. But this steward gets caught, or at least he gets accused by the master. Um, and that's the turning point of the story. It's upon getting caught that suddenly he has a transformation. Um, and I would even go to say that it's it's similar to a repentance. Uh, in that, suddenly now the wealth is not being extracted, it's actually flowing back. So mm. he starts cutting debt, he starts using his master's wealth to cut the debts of the people who he had been previously extracting wealth from. Uh, and he does this. Um, what uh, Bruce Molina, who's a, uh, a biblical scholar and kind of anthropologist, um, he notes that the amounts of debt that are described in this parable are massive. They're not just the debts of an individual or not even just the debts of a family. They're actually potentially the debts of an entire village. So he is taking literally massive amounts of wealth and eliminating the debts of these people, which we know, um, you know, Tony, we know is is an image of God's kingdom, the, the release from debt of the poor. Uh, that was the way in which people were enslaved, Pe- that was the way, and are enslaved actually, uh, that was the way in which land was taken from uh, previous landowners. So suddenly this is all being released, and that's where Jesus says, use unrighteous mammon well for God's purposes. And I think it's a really beautiful and powerful description of the complexity of our lives, complexity of working within institutions, um, you know, that have a lot of wealth from multiple sources, some of it not great. And mm-hmm. we all have to ask ourselves, well, where, what, what is my role within this? Um, how am I supposed to turn wealth uh, you know it, am I supposed to continue to extract from unjust sources am I continue to do that you know however efficient and and well that must be toward for like institutional growth or or it, are we supposed to be doing something completely different is that is that what God is calling us to do um so at the end of this whole experience I, I've actually come to love this parable because it is it is so complex um and and it also recognizes that we, we live in a world uh, that is profoundly morally uh, complicated, and yet we're also called to live out God's purposes. And I believe the liberative purposes.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I um, when, when I first read that, that, that chapter, I thought, you know, certainly I've never, 22 years ordained as a pastor, I have never preached on these pastors, never, hmm. right? So, you know, I, I might try to now. I've used it for parenting, though very, very good passage to use for parenting, um, <laughs> uh, to, uh, and of course self-justification, just just for the complexity of things, right? Yeah. Anytime, anytime somebody comes in and said it's absolutely, you know, the gospel truth is this, right? I went, ah, well, you know, actually, Jesus kind of said other things that are not, you know, you probably disagree with, and you know, they're they're right. oh, yeah. it's not that simple, right? So so. But, but I, have ne- I had never, until I read your book, I had never I, I had never interpreted as a, as an act of grace, right? That this is a, uh, yeah, that, that it was actually good news for the people who, who you know, he, they owe 100 gallons of oil and now they owe, owe half, right? That the, the, the liberation yes. they felt, right? And I thought, wow, this is, you know, and I think, for for all those listening, if you are if you're a, if you have to preach every week, this this book will give you a lot of kernels you can take to the pulpit. <laughs> you, this is uh, Miguel does does such a good job at, at diving so deep into this the obscure history of of wealth and money in in the first five century. When I first when when you, when you first told me you were writing this book, my my first reaction I think I told you I was at first five century. <laughs> That's before capitalism, before the wealth of creation, right? But it actually, you know, after reading the few chapters you sent me, I'm like, oh, yeah, that
0: it makes sense, right? I, I mean, I, I know that this is like, uh, this, is, this is the way my mind works. But mm-hmm. studying the Roman Empire feels, and the way the Roman Empire worked, feels directly relevant to the world that we live in today. Um, one little factor which I don't think I even talked very much about, but which which just strikes me every single day is there were two judicials, two justice systems, um, you know one for the elite and one for the poor, with two completely separate punishment systems, one for the elite and one for the poor. And I always just when I when I read about Rome, I just think well, they were just more honest. They were just more upfront about all the patterns that we're still uh, we're still, enacting today. And there's you know a reason for that. A lot of the, the founding fathers loved Rome and they thought about Rome. They they mm-hmm. loved ancient so- societies and they patterned a lot of our, our practices on, on ancient society. So it really it studying those first five centuries, particularly as Rome decays and crumbles, you know, hello <laughs> it like and to see the church trying to navigate as the, that period. It's like, well, that's what we're living through right now. Um, and I kid you not, um, the, the sermon again, to go back to Basil of Caesarea and wealth in a time of natural disaster. He was railing against the wealthy because they were withholding, uh, they were withholding food from the city of Caesarea as prices were rising and people were mm. so literally he's talking about uh, the the price of food rising in the markets um and uh you know it's it's just this very very powerful very powerful sermon about what the obligation of the wealthy is at a time when so many people are suffering and and i could again could not help but think about it when i saw like Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson take off in that, you know, in their rockets, uh, and think like, "Wow, like they're literally doing this," as people around the world uh, are in this particular moment of, of so much pain. Um, I, I happen to sit on the board of uh, Episcopal Relief and Development, um, and you know, the the reports. Uh, let me let me yeah. It is widely known and being said that we're now twenty uh, in terms of global poverty. We're now like t- we've we've gone back twenty years in terms of the progress. Um, there is extreme poverty like it was in the nineteen nineties. Um, well, we we're in twenty twenty two 2000, yeah. <laughs> um, like that's that's sort of where we are globally, and like. I don't know it's it's such an important time to think about about
1: this stuff yeah we i mean we can talk a lot about that and the millennial project and our and our friend at colombia who uh who thought was yes. going to end poverty and <laughs> yeah uh, there, there's another uh, uh instance that you bring up in the book in, in chapter 10 about the the, the shepherd of hermas and uh and redemptive alms giving that i thought that was very new to me. Tell, tell us more about that and, and why, why you included that, that, uh, that illustration.
0: Yeah, that, um, so the Shepherd of Hermes is a third century text that um, offers an image uh, of how the rich and poor function symbiotically. Uh, they describe mm-hmm. the rich and poor as like the elm tree to the vine. So the elm tree used to be the, so the, the elm tree, which does not bear fruit, by the way, um, used to be the support system for the fruiting vine, which would wrap around it. And so the Shepherd of Hermas is an, is a, is an argument. It, act, or it lays out multiple images and visions. Um, but it says that the wealthy are like the elm tree. They do not bear fruit. Um, they have a. They're they're more distant from God, but they can offer shade and protection to the poor, who do bear fruit for God, but without the support of the rich, they are unprotected. They are left unprotected, you know, from their from the sun as well as from you know predatory beasts. Um, and so there's this like symbiotic image that comes through and it gets picked up and, and it becomes a beloved image uh, within Christianity. Um, of this idea that the rich and and the poor can exist in this kind of like ideally healthy, uh, continued relationship. And the redemptive almsgiving part is that um, you know, the rich can basically, by almsgiving, the wealthy can, they're not buying their salvation, but what they are is they're, they're giving to the poor, and therefore the poor will pray to God for the wealthy's salvation. And it's the prayers of the poor that open wide the eye of the needle so that the wealthy can gain their redemption, right? So this uh, it's a transaction, and it's literally discussed as a transaction. So, in, in the Shepherd of Hermes and from for a long period afterwards, the wealthy are encouraged to instead of using the their money to buy houses and land, you no know, you know, give alms to the poor, and you are essentially buying your salvation as a result. Um, now, <laughs> this is a. I, I just want to note that this is an image in which the rich stay rich and the poor stay poor and there's no structural change. There's certainly no reversal happening in this image of a symbiotic relationship. Um, and it's also very, very much, whether we are willing to acknowledge or not, I see it happening uh, uh, today. I mean, what, what do you think is happening whenever Wealthy people go on mission trips uh, and kind of do volunteerism. Like, what? who is that actually serving? Um, what, you know, Tony, you, you work at, a, at an institution that talks a lot about toxic charity and how you want to move away from examples of toxic charity, where like the structural systems aren't necessarily being challenged. Um, it's really benefiting one side of the equation, the, the wealthy, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot in philanthropy, I would argue, a lot of unhealthy forms of philanthropy that um, really the primary concern is is you know the salvation or the feeling good or the the of of the wealthy. And, and it's not addressing the actual you know, uh, structural system that cause poverty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that image is right there. Um, it, it's it's deeply part of the Christian tradition um, and emerge out of Rome and then gets picked up and really embraced uh, by, by many other parts of, of the church.
1: Yeah, what, what surprised me was that, and I, you know, I think and write about you know, therapeutic Christianity, right, therapeutic religion that you, you believe only to make yourself feel good, which is really, it's not really the point of, of belief. Um, but that's a modern the way I I understand it. The, the forms of therapeutic uh, religion that I, that I study is it's a modern phenomenon. But but you found it that in the early you know early church that they were already doing this this type of alms uh, giving for you know way before the reformation right that thousand years before the the reformation they were they were doing this.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and you can like, there's a there's a period in Christian history early in which the poor still have names, you know. There are specific names of people that are being referenced. And the the story of Lazarus and the rich man, it's the rich man who is a generalized figure. Lazarus is the guy with the name, right? Um, and then, about late second century, third, uh, I would say. Yeah, late, second, late uh, second, third century. Suddenly, you know, there are bishops who are slaveholders. There are clergy who are slaveholders. And suddenly the, the texts really start to change. They're, they're, the poor no longer have names. The, the poor are the generalized characters. And really, mm-hmm. centers of the story, the centers of the action are the wealthy. And it's what do the wealthy do with their wealth? Um, To gain salvation and the shepherd of Hermas is this kind of interesting transition text because it was he was a former slave, who was freed and then became wealthy and then lost all his wealth. So he's like this interesting kind of uh, transition uh, voice between the two. But yeah, no, that there is, it becomes um, a lot of texts become about pastoral care of the wealthy, and a lot of the Mm. Which we think about wealth and wealth stewardship becomes about uh, not only pastoral care of the wealthy, but care and building up of institutions of the church, particularly as the empire uh, crumbles.
1: So, so, thinking about modern times and in your experience, right, are there, are there organizations, are there Christians and models that, that are doing this well today? Are there models of uh, of um, stewards who are who are not unjust, who are, who are true but not unjust?
0: I mean, absolutely. And again, like just to go back to the complexity of the parable, uh, part of the beauty of it is like all of us are are trying to live out this call within a morally complicated world in which you know we are getting donations from God knows where, (laughs) the endowments from God knows where, you know, all all those things. But I do see a lot of examples of, um, you know, people turning away from models of toxic charity toward models uh, in which you're walking alongside uh, uh, communities. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, I was just just last week, I had a wonderful conversation um, and uh, with uh, uh, the faith coordinator of the Council for Lending. And um, she runs a kind of round table of faith leaders, uh, mostly based in the South, of people who are, who have for a very long time been working to enact, uh, faith leaders who have been working to enact policies uh, to limit predatory lending in their states, uh, in their states. So, in South Carolina, for instance, there's a, a major effort underway to cap uh, loans at 32%, which seems very high, but still, that's they're really working hard to create that cap. So there, there are uh, there's an Episcopal uh, Federal Credit Union based out of uh, L.A which actually came as a result of the Rodney King riots. So when the riots took place, banks headed out of the poorest neighborhoods and the only thing that were left were pawn shops and payday loan places. And so um, the Episcopal Church Act stepped in and created a credit union, the Episcopal Mm -hmm. Credit Union, which we can become members of, by the way. Um, And uh, um, it, offered during Covid, for instance, it offered, um, I think it increased the number of small cash loans made available to uh, people. Uh, and then it also like cut cut the interest rate on loans for uh, for congregations significantly. So like there are there are people who are really deep, thinking deeply uh, about faith and finance and are literally living into. This idea that you can use money to uh, mitigate debt, uh, particularly, um, and, uh, and, and that's just that is an incredibly, healthy use of uh, money. Actually, one exact parallel I can almost forgot about this uh, to the parable of the unjust steward. There is a there's an organization called something like, Cut Medical Debt. Um, I'll I'll need to get that information for you. But interestingly, it was founded by people who previously, executives who previously worked in the payday loan industry. Um, And they left that job uh, and have begun, and they've begun this organization by which they get people to make donations, and they just use those donations to cut medical debt uh, for people. And I actually know of uh, a few congregations who have uh, made those contributions, and you know, uh, they they go about the work of relieving people from medical debt, which is uh, a huge uh, issue within this country.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. That's beautiful. I think for for those of us at the who are concerned about justice issues of justice it's so easy to get this illusion because of just so much greed and evil and bad actors but but there are also these you know extremely creative imaginative people and organizations uh, who who see what's wrong and try to bring good and beauty into into the world and, and grace uh, obviously i mean we we're only we met each other because we're part of organizations that are trying to do that, right? You know, Trinity Church Wall Street clearly has—it's—it's uh, it's very comfortable, <laughs> and you know. But last year we gave away forty-one million dollars to, you know, globally to help uh, uh, to to help, and, and those are just grants, right? In gifts, it was, it was it was even even more. But but in this job, I've met so many. Uh, it, in this position, I met mean, so many creative people thinking exactly about that, right? That when, you know, even just five, six years ago, uh, there, there weren't people talking about decolonizing the way, you know, theological education. Right. Right. I mean, maybe a union, they were more, you know, you had, you had Dr. Cohn there who was, you know, a little more forward thinking. But now, you know the idea of decolonizing education and the models for education, right? We we work with uh, w- with institutions around the world, right? And and, and it's it's actually hopeful that that uh, the the Western models of uh, economic models, theological models, political models, even they are it, it's all being being questioned. Uh, and at the very least complexify right no, nobody's taking this what, what the you know missionaries in the old days took over. nobody's taking that wholesale anymore and and, there, and especially in, in communities of color right? I'm in conversation with some friends at the, in Boston who are who have very concrete thinking very concrete ways of ending the racial wealth gap and um, you know African Americans who who are trying to to start um, some type of credit union for churches, so that you know all the all the money we, we collect, we put on the offering plate on Sunday, ends up at you know these banks that ends up foreclosing us. So why yeah. why not create our own bank and put the money in our own bank and put, keep the money in our community? Right. These these are actual conversations that that people are having, and, and we have the resources, we have the, the leaders in our communities to do this so so there's uh yeah there, there, there's a little hope there and there's like um, this really
0: there's this beautiful line which is is it is said at some point like you know you you have to shift from being stewards of wealth and i would say even stewards of institutional wealth to becoming stewards of humanity mm. and kind of mentally make that shift you're talking and thinking about resources in a very different way um, you're, you know, we can still embrace or use the word steward, although I don't like it, uh, but, but are we stewards of humanity um, is, the, is the kind of way, I think, in which you're talking about this transformation taking place. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, Miguel, tell me, the, who, who was your ideal reader for this book when you were writing it? Who, who do you want to, to, to get, get this book in front of?
0: I would, um, so um, my previous work with the Episcopal Church Foundation uh, was working directly with congregations and specifically the parish councils of congregations. And um, I really am a big believer that you know, um, you have to have conversations to expand the moral imagination of what's possible, right? And so this book was written with the idea, with the goal that it would be kind of accessible, uh, accessibly written, have some information that would spark conversations at the congregational level, for really thinking thinking differently about money, um, and for thinking about the way differently about the way that Christianity has has taught about money. And wealth and poverty. So my, my ideal would be uh, congregations. Uh, you know, I think I would be very honored to hear like that a, a little parish council had took one chapter and discussed it. Uh, and you know, that that I think is is really where the work takes place um, and where then you know communities then become connected to exactly those sorts of efforts that you're you're describing. Hmm
1: what's uh, wh- wh- what's one action item you, you hope will take they they'll do after so, so you get in front of them they read the book what do you hope they, they do
0: yeah so every single <laughs> every single chapter actually ends with some discussion uh, questions as well as uh, uh, an action item uh, but uh, oftentimes like reflect a little bit more or you know learn a little bit more about the, um, I I think, um, I mean, let me try to think of one from from one of these chapters. Uh, I think I do encourage people to learn a lot more about things like the credit unions that are taking place. Um, Mm -hmm. Learn more about the um, oftentimes local clergy initiatives that are uh, neighborhood clergy initiatives that are addressing justice issues, Uh, oftentimes our denomination specifically even uh, that and 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 you know start to partner with those those groups mm.
1: so uh, in, in closing what uh, what's one thing you you think people people wouldn't know unless they read this book that we haven't mentioned so far yeah what, what's one kernel of truth that that you think most people would only get by reading your book
0: yeah, so there's um I'm trying to decide which one. Um, mm, say more than one. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a really beautiful homily that takes place um, by John Chris Chrysostom. Um, in, in which Again, he's talking about institutional wealth. Um, he uh, was preaching at the Golden Church in Antioch, which was, you know, this beautiful octagonal uh, church with a golden dome on the top and, like, you know, look, just it was just absolutely stunning. Um, and he preached a sermon about. Golden cups and kind of the golden cups that were on the altar. Uh, And his argument was that it's all well and good to have golden cups, but sometimes communities have forgotten that we're supposed to also give a cup of water to the poor. Um, And he makes a Eucharistic argument, which again, in my denomination, that this holds a lot of water. Um, He says, yes, it's true, Jesus said that he would come in his body through the Eucharist, but in Matthew 25, he actually also says that he would come in his body through the, through the bodies of the least of these, and so if we are obsessed with golden cups on the altar, and yet have forgotten to give a cup of water to the poor, we're actually not worshiping the body of Christ. We're failing in our Eucharistic uh, piety. And he goes on, and it's like, again, stunningly beautiful sermon. He says, um, you know we have a bunch of altar cloths, and yet we refuse to give, or have forgotten to give a winter coat to someone who's suffering uh, from the cold. Um, we are raising money for a uh, lamps with silver chains and yet we are not visiting prisoners held in chains. Um, and he goes through Matthew 25, uh, that, those passages from Matthew 25, which he calls the sweetest passage, and says basically, a true Eucharistic piety is one which recognizes that the body of Christ is certainly present in the elements, but it's also present in the bodies and the welfare of the least of these. And a community that is actually centered in this would be about more than just golden cups. (laughs) Um, And and he he then goes on to say that, like, um, really the the top priority has to be serving the poor, Um, which again, this is a very interesting, it's very moving first. Let's wanna acknowledge that and like just say, in terms of spirituality, it's a profoundly moving statement. It's also really interesting, as a statement, to think about institutional wealth and where one then prioritizes institutional wealth um, and what an, what an organization that is Eucharistically centered and how it prioritizes uh, that, that wealth in the spending. Um, so I, I'm not sure that people would always encounter that text in particular, uh, but I, I really enjoyed reading it and it's really it's been one of those uh pieces that kind of stayed with me as um you know i, I go to church on sunday and, you know uh work in an institution as well
1: yeah no that that's great that's great and and again i want to emphasize there there is just so much so, so many nuggets of uh, of knowledge throughout this book that you 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 draw throughout the book that things that even you know an educated <laughs> seminary trained person would not have would not have encountered a lot of this this text that you you dug up and and presented to us. So the book comes out in in July, I think, right?
0: God willing. I mean that that's what we're working toward. But yeah, yeah, in July.
1: And, and it will be out in both English and Spanish.
0: It will that's be right. out in English and Spanish. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Ah no,
1: vamos tener que hacer otro podcast castellano, eh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Para la próxima. Sí, si, sí si podemos. Yo voy a batallar un poquito, pero sí.
1: Está bien, está bien. Con un poquito de Spanish se puede. Pero bueno, oh well, back to English. Uh, so, so, uh yeah, the book will be out in July, 2022, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we've been here talking to Miguel Escobar about his forthcoming book, *The Unjust World*. And I really hope it gets a wide readership. We, we really need this book at this time. Thank you so much, Miguel.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Tony. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative
1: provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.